And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop. Thank you for being here. I am very proud to announce that today marks our 100th episode. And to celebrate the new milestone, Montel Williams and Josh Crossney are joining me to talk about the convergence of advocacy and science to advance the revolutionary cannabis movement. But first, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thank you, Snowden. I was happy to hear that you'll be talking about cannabis as an alternative therapy for multiple sclerosis. There are a number of reasons why I think it makes sense when you understand the nature of this disease. MS is a degenerative disease that results in loss of myelin, the protective layer of protein that surrounds our nerves. When this happens, nerves are directly exposed to damaging toxins, microbes, and autoimmune responses. Unprotected nerves can then cause disruption of nerve signaling that lead to muscle spasticity, severe pain, and loss of mobility, among other symptoms. While scientists are uncertain of the exact causes of MS, we do know that inflammation, depression, poor appetite, and stress can trigger progression of this disease. A deficiency in amino acids, phospholipids, and trace minerals can also be complicating factors. Unfortunately, there are no known cures for MS at this time. Conventional treatment protocols call for medications to try and slow the progression of myelin loss and a variety of medications that deal with each underlying symptom individual. Most commonly, these include steroids for inflammation, opiates and anti-inflammatories for pain, benzodiazepines for anxiety and muscle spasticity, stimulants for fatigue, and a host of other drugs to counter the numerous side effects. These drugs oftentimes do little to improve the quality of life for people suffering with MS. They can also lead to other debilitating problems such as compromised organ function and addiction, Fortunately, we're beginning to understand the vital role the endocannabinoid system plays in governing the autoimmune and neurological systems, key factors in controlling MS and its symptoms. Cannabinoids such as THC and CBD have shown to be therapeutic for controlling pain, spasticity, depression, sleep loss, and other outward symptoms of MS. More importantly, we're beginning to understand the neuroregenerative and anti-inflammatory properties of cannabis which can help explain why so many MS patients show improvement when they transition from conventional treatment to medical marijuana therapy. It may be some time before we can fully understand all the scientific reasons cannabis is beneficial for people with MS. But for now, as a physician, I would have no problem advising a patient with MS to try medical marijuana as an alternative treatment where it is legal to do so. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you so much, Dr. Donner. As you can imagine, taking a new pharmaceutical drug to market is challenging, but established companies are rarely denied FDA approval if they can prove a drug's efficacy with sufficient scientific data. Once it's approved, public acceptance is usually a given, doctors trust the science, and there's seldom meaningful government oversight unless a company breaks the law. 
Few producers have been held accountable for drug fatalities, and even though most patients don't know or care how or where their prescription drugs are made, few would question their doctor's prescription. By comparison, cannabis has been stuck between a rock and a hard place for 80 years. Despite more than 20,000 cannabis-related studies by reputable scientists cataloged at the National Institute of Health, only one whole plant cannabis drug has ever received the FDA's blessing, while some of the world's most dangerous conventional drugs sailed through bureaucratic processes without any objection. In states where it's legal, the cannabis industry is mired in bureaucracy, hamstrung by regulatory constraints of federal prohibition, and constantly subjected to undue scrutiny of government and anti-marijuana lobbies. The truth is, cannabis never should have been scheduled alongside heroin and LSD in the first place. But you ask a skeptical lawmaker why they refuse to remove it from Schedule 1, and you'll likely hear them say it's because we need more scientific studies to ensure it poses no public health risks. When you remind them that the clinical studies were banned in the U.S. because cannabis is a Schedule 1 controlled substance, you'll likely get a blank stare. Such is the cannabis conundrum. But despite their ongoing denial, cannabis saves lives. Recent studies are confirming what healers have known for thousands of years before prohibition. While our nation's criminal code deems cannabis to have no medical value and a high potential for abuse, scientists and medical practitioners are realizing that cannabis deficiency is actually dangerous to human health. And yet, ever since cannabis was removed from the U.S. pharmacopoeia, it lost its legitimacy as a viable medicine, and for decades after it became a Schedule I controlled substance, no amount of credible evidence that cannabis isn't harmful could reverse the stigma within the medical community. Doctors rely on scientific data, but when it's not sanctioned by the federal government, it's not data that they're willing to trust. Not yet, anyway. Over the last 20 years, the public perception has slowly shifted to the point that even the most skeptical doctors and researchers are taking notice. But even though state legalization measures have opened doors for research here in the U.S., the fact that cannabis is still prohibited at the federal level means a lack of federal resources and extraordinary restrictions that make it nearly impossible to test formulations not made from substandard cannabis supplied by the U.S. government. That's where advocacy becomes so important. The value of a public figure who advocates for cannabis cannot be overestimated. Without their prominent voices, public acceptance might still be underwater. No one understands this better than Montel Williams. As an Emmy award-winning TV personality who became a medical marijuana patient after being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 1999, he became one of the first high-profile advocates to cast a spotlight on the absurdity of cannabis prohibition. Since then, he's lobbied for cannabis law reform in nearly every state, and as founder of Lenative Scientific, he's now researching and developing new cannabis therapy formulas. Having spent more than two decades serving in the Marine Corps and as a commissioned Navy officer, he's also an ardent advocate for veterans to have unrestricted access to cannabis when they need it. Montella, I'm so delighted that you could join us and honored that you're here for our 100th episode. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Oh, you're certainly welcome. 
Also on the line with us is Josh Crossney, who we actually interviewed earlier this year. He's the founder of the Cannabis Science Conference. And what you may not know is that Montel delivered the keynote address at the very first Cannabis Science Conference in Portland, Oregon, two years ago. He's also slated to speak at the event again next year when it makes its East Coast debut in Baltimore, Maryland. So I was thrilled to be able to get both of them on the show at the same time. Josh, thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad that you could join us as well. Well, thank you so much for having me today, Snowden. It's really excited uh, to be back with you guys for the 100th episode. Thanks, Josh. So this is pretty exciting for you because I know that Montel has spoken at your science conference before. And this time in Baltimore, you're going to be in his hometown. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're really excited to work with Montel again as a keynote speaker. Our attendees really loved hearing from him. Again, like you said, Montel's from Baltimore. I'm also from Baltimore, so it's really kind of a full circle experience to launch our first East Coast show and for it to be in Baltimore. No, that's great. And it was pretty exciting to watch as three states actually enacted voter initiatives. And Missouri was a bit of a surprise, as was Utah. So Montel, I know that you've been very active in speaking out. And in Florida, you were pretty actively involved in that law as well. Well, I think what a lot of people don't know is that I've, I've been involved in cannabis long before it became the green rush that it is today. And, and I'm, I'm talking all the way back in 2001. So before anybody was even thinking about, as we are right now, moving this, this, these initiatives forward, I've been on the battleground and on the, on the field and out, out in the, the streets lobbying from New York to New Jersey to Connecticut to Florida to Missouri to Ohio, Pennsylvania, Nevada, California. I've been all across this country trying to ensure that patients have the right to have a private conversation with their doctor if their doctor is the one who recommends them to try cannabis instead of some of the other more deleterious drugs that are out there. And, um, you know, there's nobody has a right to be in the middle of that conversation between a patient and their doctor. And so I will continue to advocate until we get all 50 states, or at least we get a clear majority and, and some sort of a change in the status that uh, our federal government has placed the drug in. That literally is just so ridiculous and, and as, as an oxymoron as we can be, considering the fact that our federal government owns a patent for cannabis and has done research on cannabis for over 40 years through a program out of the University of Mississippi. Um, to stand in the way and claim that we still need more research is almost as, as ridiculous as, as owning the patent and giving the patent out and licensing it to people, but then turning around and saying that they still don't believe in the science that they themselves have funded. Absolutely. I mean, it is pretty crazy, but that's the importance of people speaking out on it. And I know that it's been a long time that you've been in this, as you said, and tell me what the turning point was for you. You know, was it through the diagnosis of MS, which um, I know you've been very vocal about how it's helped you with that condition, but were you advocating before then, or was that sort of the catalyst that got you into it? I I literally started advocating once my diagnosis from what the MS came through, and, and because and for our first two years of that diagnosis, I, you know, doctors only had in their arsenal of, of tricks in their bag and their tools to battle neuropathic pain. They chose the drug that was never, ever invented for it, which was opioids. And so, you know, I, like so many people in the last five or six years, you know, found myself 
battling what back then we wouldn't call it that. This is from 2000, from 1999 to 2001. I was battling what was really a very serious opioid addiction and didn't even know that I had an opioid addiction until I had a doctor literally say, I'm not writing you any more prescriptions because you're, you're eating too many of them at the same time. And I suggested that his exact words were, I don't really know how it works, but I was told that the stuff called marijuana might help you. So, you know, you ought to try it and, and you do the research and figure it out. But I'm guaranteeing that it's going to be way better than what you've been doing with the opioids. And so about 2001, I started and has not, a day has not gone by since then that I have not consumed a cannabis product. Um, and because, one, you know, extreme opioid use almost shut down my kidneys and my liver. And, and two, it really wasn't actually serving any purpose whatsoever other than make me drool of corn. Um, it wasn't until I found cannabis to that I started finding the relief I needed. And, you know, again, long before, you know, this was vogue, long before, you know, uh, people did specials on HBO and people did specials on CNN, now, I was out seeking, you know, CBD products back in 2003, 2004, when, you know, the research was being done in Israel and other places around the world, funded by the United States government was proving the efficacy of cannabis, cannabis and cannabinoids as an alternative to opioids and an alternative treatment for various different neurological diseases. So now this isn't, again, I guess I was very, very you know, selfish in a way when I started my advocacy because it just seemed ridiculous to me that I had to spend the amount of money I was spending on opioids and could not get the relief that was much more simple and has been recognized as a relieving agent for thousands of years. And I, I took it upon myself along with, you know, teaming up with organizations like DPA and the MPP way back in 2002 and three and four. So I'm getting across the country, uh, participated in uh, writing and helping to write, helping to push forward legislation in places like Connecticut, places like New Jersey, places like New York. Uh, I was one of the first people in this country to actually received a grow license from the federal government, which was issued in Washington, D.C. Though I ended up leaving that company, it was because of my advocacy in D.C. that I think helped turn that tide. So this is something that I intend to stay involved in until every patient in this country has access to cannabis as an alternative treatment to the other treatments that the doctors prescribe. You know, 20 years later, practically, I mean, if you started this in 1999, I mean, we've made a lot of progress, but it, it must seem painfully slow for you to know that there are still states that just don't have any access at all. Well, what is so ridiculous about it is that we can actually, out of one side of our mouth, lie to the American public and say that there's no research that confirms the viability of cannabis as a alternative medication for a myriad of different illnesses when we know for a fact every congressman and senator who's taken those oaths of office for the last 40 years has you know, ensured as part of the federal budget that they have funded a program at the University of Mississippi, which has been actually distributing marijuana for 40 years under a program out of the United States government. So how can we out of one side of our face say that we have something like we hear that the, the current attorney general who just now recently has stated that there might be some viability behind cannabis. How can he even say that when he himself 
has ensured that they have not stopped the funding of the research that the federal government has done for over 40 years. And, you know, a lot of people who are listening right now don't even know that every single month for the last 40 years, there has been a canister, at least three canisters, and up to 20 canisters of cannabis that have been sent out from the University of Mississippi to 20 patients. Now it's down to three because 17 of them have passed away. But a, a canister of, of marijuana rolled cigarettes have gone out from the University of Mississippi to patients who were part of a program that was an experimental program uh, that the federal government started over 40 years ago. And we funded this research. We fund that opportunity and that the ability for patients to have it and for us to turn to other people and say that you have a right to the same medication that we've been growing and providing to me, it's absolutely an abomination. And, and when you look at the amount of money that the U.S. government has spent in research in Israel and other places on cannabis, to then turn around and say that we have no viable data that proves the efficacy of this as a medication is just a bold, bald-faced lie. That is what you know, we, as, uh, we allow our government to do to us without uh, any, any questions whatsoever. Now, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And if I'm not mistaken, that was actually the glaucoma program. That was a program that was started even before glaucoma. That was a program that was started under the first George Bush because petitions had come in to the federal government because of people back then when we first had the first wave and surge of, of HIV and AIDS. We started a program back then where 21 patients were enrolled in an experimental program out of the University of Mississippi. They had everything from rare genetic bone diseases all the way through to you know, advanced uh, stages of MS. And so that program never was, has been funded every single time we pass a budget. And we continue to fund it. The entire glaucoma process is what started you know, the process of trying to come up with synthetic drugs like Marinol to replace what nature has given us, who has been getting cannabis once a month, every single month in the mail. He's one of the only people in the country that is authorized to carry it on every airplane and anywhere in the country. But our government decided not to expand the program because they got so over-inundated by so many people who wanted to be a part of it that George Bush closed it down. But the point of it is, 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago, our government started researching cannabis through a program at the University of Mississippi. We have spent taxpayer dollars every day funding this program. And if you can't tell me that 40 years worth of research doesn't give you an answer, then we have some pretty big idiots sitting in Washington, D.C. Well, <laughs> when, <laughs> I can't even get started on that because the hypocrisy is just astonishing to me. And, you know, it also goes to climate change. And there are so many things that our lawmakers are just in denial about. Or actually, I think it's not even denial. Sometimes I think it's a lot more sinister than that. And I think that it does have to do with the special interests that are preventing cannabis from doing what it's meant to do, which is to heal humans and to protect our earth. Yeah, we also have to recognize the fact that hemp in itself is so disruptive to what has been the last, you know, 80 years of industrialization in the world. I mean, you have a product that we know now, after doing some additional research on, that hemp cellulose fibers make better brick and better construction materials than what we do when we use cement. 
As a matter of fact, right now, all over the world, hemp fibers are being used to rebuild parts of the Middle East. And, you know, not only that, but we also know that there's some research that's been done that hemp cellulose, when wound together the right way and, and put in a battery, actually can store more electricity than metal fibers alone. We don't pay attention to the science because we know how disruptive it could be to other businesses. I mean, we look way back as to the part of the reason why, you know, in 1937, Marijuana Tax Act was passed. It was passed because it was pushed by William Randolph Hearst and DuPont. And of course, because we had something that was going to interfere with, you know, the manufacturing of plastics and, and, and textiles rather than do what we had done for thousands of years. I mean, most people don't even know that the entire Revolutionary Army was clothed in uniforms made from hemp fibers. Every tent, every boat, every sail, everything we used in this country up until 1937 that was made out of cloth had some form of hemp fiber in it. We just decided to change the way the world does business and allow people to wait for the, you know, our natural resources and the came to the big trees and cutting down trees and the fact that we could turn oil into textiles. And that's where the problem began. If we had really looked at the reasons why hemp was so vilified, it has nothing to do with the fact that it was a drug. It was turned into the vilification because of the drug. Again, by Henry Anslinger, and anybody who's listening right now, if you just go to the website and, and call up Henry Anslinger, you can see that on the state, on the capital steps in Washington, D.C., back in like 1935, he did a speech claiming that the reason why we need to make cannabis illegal is because it makes a black man want to step on a white man's shadow, and white women want to have sex with, you know, using the, 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 the racist term for blacks and Hispanics. So it wasn't something that was drummed up because we feared that it was some sort of a gateway drug. We had, you know, opioid abuse uh, in this country back in the after the Civil War because we had so many people who had been injured, so many people in pain. So you had, you know, the dens around the country that were were using opioids and things. So it wasn't because it was a drug or a problem that way. It was because it was interfering with business. But the good thing is, and we've got guys like Josh and, and people who have decided to hold conferences where the science is what rules, where people have an opportunity to come together and listen to doctors and share information that will help to move this forward. Now, there's there is speculation and there's there's information that's proving that you know hemp and cannabis will be close to a trillion dollar business over the next five six years around the world. And so, you know, the, out of the 1961 treaty that was signed at the UN, there you are know, about 25 nations that pulled out of that treaty. I just spoke at a conference in Jamaica where 22 countries were represented in because they're sick and tired of listening to the garbage coming out of the United States claiming to vilify cannabis. Yeah, that's it's interesting about the nations that are pulling out of the treaty. And I know that the ball started rolling probably before this, but a couple of years ago, they had the United Nations General Assembly on drug abuse and drug use. And at that time, there were a lot of conversations about undoing some of these treaties, because just about every country in the world signed on to the United States drug treaties. And then in 1971, it was like, you know, the nail was in the coffin. And from there, millions of lives have been destroyed. But you know, back to the hypocrisy. This is one of the things, Josh, that I think is so important about the science conference. 
And you and I talked about this a little bit the last time you were on the show. But the excuse that science is the reason that our lawmakers won't move forward with meaningful legislation goes completely out the window when you get people like Montel and other advocates speaking out on behalf of this and people are listening and those are constituents who vote. <laughs> and so, you know, with, with this science conference, are you going to try to involve some lawmakers this time since you'll be so close to Washington, D.C.? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a really great um, and close relationship with the, the commission here in Maryland that's overseeing all of the, the, the medical programs in here. And we definitely have our eyes on some politicians and some senators from multiple states, including the West Coast and the East Coast, and bringing them together um, for kind of a regulatory, um, you know, session type um, situation. And then I also think it's a great opportunity because, you know, you're in Maryland and there are all these great institutions and, and, and universities like Hopkins. You have NIH, you have all these things that are kind of right at your disposal, like University of Maryland. So we really, um, our goal is to get them as involved as possible. Um, and really, you know, it's a great thing to see over the past couple years where we have seen more and more universities and institutions starting to get involved, whether it's, you know, uh, universities like Northern um, Michigan University, where they're doing a plant chemistry program. And, um, you know, we have um, UC Irvine is doing some stuff out in California, where I think before the past couple years, people really feared not only losing their federal funding, but also the grants and the money that they get from private donors. Like, as you're saying, the true scientists, the true medical professionals are really to the point to where they're just tired of this not being represented and they're having to come on the back end and learn it from, you know, events like ours. But we really are happy to kind of be that platform and, and have that event where, you know, medical professionals and doctors and scientists and patients and consumers can kind of come all and learn about the science behind this plant. Because as you said, if, if we start basing this off of science and research and, and what we're really seeing, then there's no question. This should be accessible to everyone. It's a product that's safe enough to be used recreationally as, as an alternative to things like alcohol and other illicit drugs. But we cannot forget, and I know Montel's a big advocate for this, we cannot forget that this is a community that was started on patients, seen in a lot of states where they go from a medical program to a recreational program, and then eventually the medical program either greatly suffers or ends up being completely absolved into that recreational program. We definitely need to start taking more approaches with looking at this scientifically. But again, we have our challenges in the U.S. as Montel was mentioning the University of Mississippi kind of holds a monopoly on the research and the product that's used for research. And it's, it's really like not the same product quality and, and the type of cannabis that we're looking at. Yeah, I agree. And so sorry, I could often talk to somebody better. I mean, I think you know, as I speak around the country and I'm speaking around the world on this issue as of late, um, you know, I try to remind people that, you know, as much as in the last three or four years, this has become this big green rush. People have to remember that there was a time in this country when patients were dragged from their homes with IVs in their arms just because they were growing a few plants in their home in the, in, in the Humboldt County and in you know, Northern California, when people were actually starting to try to advocate back in 1991, I mean, sorry, 1996, 97, 98, 2000. There were patients who were literally arrested and put in jail just because they were trying to live a normal life. So one of the things that we all have to remember, we've got to take the patient off the battlefield. No ifs, ands, or buts. And so as people move forward and produce products in this country, they should be producing products 
with patients in mind. And then, of course, if you're going to sell something over the counter, then at least the scrutiny has already been done in ensuring the efficacy and safety of the product. I mean, I, I find it absolutely ridiculous that, you know, we are still using some extraction techniques in this country that are based on really just the poor science in the world. And we have not really even come up with a standard yet for testing equipment. And though we're using some very, very expensive testing equipment, not one facility in this country can literally repeat the same test that another facility has done. So it's ridiculous that you know, we're in a business and we should all be in a business to do no harm. And I'm so glad that, that Josh is leading the way. We're trying to ensure that this is a business that's based on science, not just on, you know, some some misaligned idea that anybody can produce. Yeah. And Josh brought up a really good point, too, about the medical laws as they transitioned in, into the adult use. They start to lose some of that scientific funding. And I think it is is so important to keep that aspect of it up because it does put the patients first. And I've had some pretty interesting conversations with people from from California, including Tracy from Canakids, Josh, who I spoke with before your last conference. And it was really quite interesting, the complaints that are coming out of California since they passed the adult use law, because the patients really are beginning to suffer in terms of the new taxes. I mean, everything seems to be catered toward this adult use. So it is so important to keep the science in mind. And also back to the University of Mississippi, I spoke with Sue Sisley about this. He's mm-hmm. having, and she's having, you know, a, a very tough time because the, the quality of the cannabis coming out of there is just so poor. And they haven't adhered to the same standards that we're seeing in these new state measures. And when you're trying to do a scientific study and you only have access to one crop that's not being grown properly and that isn't scientifically engineered to address some of the issues that you're testing for, it's just, it's just such a ridiculous conundrum to be in. But I think we should all be very encouraged about what's coming out of Israel and other countries that have relaxed their position on it. But Montel, I wanted to ask you about your view on military access to cannabis, because I know you have a history in the Navy. And I think I read somewhere that you went to the Naval Academy. Is that correct? Yeah, I I, had 22 years of service in both the Marine, two branches, the Marine Corps and the Navy. So I'm a graduate of the Naval Academy. I got commissioned as a Naval officer. But I will tell you, when it comes to, to, to the research and what we should be doing, I'm one of the only people to have interviewed Dr. Mishulam in his laboratory in Israel on camera. Wow. And Dr. Mishulam, and I did this 10 years ago, again, long before the green rush. Uh, I was already in his laboratory talking to him. And, you know, the research that he had done back then was research that was funded by NIDA, funded by the U.S. government. So this isn't something that is brand new. This is something that has been out there, been known and understood. And, you know, as Mishulam when he discovered, you know, THC in 66, and then it took him until 81 and 91 to start looking at where the antagonists were, the, the areas of nerves in the body that actually were receptors. And we decided back in 1991, 92, we understood that 
There is a system that's a secondary sympathetic nervous system in, the, in our bodies that every human being and a lot, almost every animal on the planet has. It's something called an endocannabinoid system that it actually is activated by cannabinoids that we find. This is research that's been around now since as long as 1991-92. So this isn't something that's brand new. And for people to act like this is something brand new, I go to some, some, some conferences now, so I said, we just discovered a brand new, we didn't just discover this, this has been around. This is not something that, that, that is, 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 you know, you opened a magic box last year. Science has written papers on this for over 20 years. So it's ridiculous that we can sit back now and act as this. We don't want to pay attention to or believe the science that is already out there. I, I am uh, um, I'm, I'm heartened a little bit though because you know a little four years ago that you know the VA decided to acknowledge the fact that cannabinoids do help, and especially in some of the cases that we have small soldiers who have suffered from extreme PTSD and other illnesses. And so we know that now you know a soldier who is in uh, a veteran who is in a state where they have a medical marijuana law. VA will not take away a veteran's, you know, uh, uh, status or his rights vis-a-vis the hospital if, in fact, his doctor gives him a real recommendation for cannabis. And this is something that's really, I think, helped to help so many of our veterans, but this should be something that's true nationwide, not just in states where a veteran has to get on a plane and fly to to get relief. This should be you know, available to veterans all over the country, and I speak on this quite often. Yeah, and it would be nice if they could also make it available to people who are serving in the war theater as well, because it, that's when the brain can be protected from these concussive injuries that they get from any kind of explosion. Cannabinoids can actually protect the brain, and it won't interfere with their service at all. And so, you know, I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen. I did a research during this election process because I was really curious to see how many of the candidates would advocate for cannabis should they be elected. So I was really astonished to find out how many of these young candidates, especially on the Democratic ticket, because the Republican ticket, they weren't really as open to discussing it, I noticed. (laughs) I thought that was really interesting even though cannabis should never have been a partisan issue. But I'm pretty encouraged because a lot of the people who were elected are advocates and they'd like to see reform. So we shall see. But I also wanted to ask you, Montel, about lenitive. Lenitive scientific. And I chose the term lenitive because it's a term that was used in pharmaceutical medication in the United States of America back in the 1900s, 1900, 1905, 1906. And the term means, with an E attitude, means assuaging and lessening pain. Wow. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I found Atlantic Scientific because, you know, I truthfully got sick of trying to find product in the marketplace that wasn't adulterated with some garbage. I mean, as much as, you know, people claim to be testing their, their products, you know, I don't buy having four or 500 parts per million. Four or five hundred parts per million wouldn't pass for any other pharmaceutical drug on the planet. So why we allow for four or five hundred parts per million in certain states, I don't understand. So I started Lenitive Labs, and we our product is being produced by uh, Cura, or by a, a, a company that by Cura Select. And what we do is we not only test our product 
two times once it's been finished and produced, but we test in two different layers. We test our feedstock before it comes in. The feedstock doesn't pass. We don't even use a feedstock for process. A lot of companies are taking any feedstock, any trim, any garbage they can get off the floor, running it through what they think is a a good and pure system using you know anything from butane and you name it, uh, hexane and other chemicals that they can use to see if they can strip the glamorous out. And then as long as they come in somewhere between you know 100 to 200 to 300 parts per million, they think they're good. I don't buy that. Our product is, is zero parts per million. We're shooting for zero parts per billion. And so we test the feedstock, and then after the feedstock's been tested, we test our finished product twice before we package it and put it up. You know, I've always found it really interesting because what we know now is that just about anything that can be made out of petrochemicals can be made out of hemp. So I've always wondered why they're not just making some kind of an ethanol product out of the hemp that can be used in place of butane to extract or use some other natural. I mean, some people are turning to CO2 to do their extraction. I use super I use a supercritical CO2 extraction or a cryoethanol extraction. Both of them have very, 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 very low temperature, you know, evaporation rates. CO2 is a naturally occurring uh, chemical in your, your everyday breathing. And as long as we can remove all of the residual chemical out of the plant, out of the product, I think that's 10 times better than any form of butane or any other, you know, uh, 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 oil-based product. Right. And as far as the research that you are doing right now, is there anything that you're, you're touching on in terms of human trials? We have a, we have we, we're new to the marketplace. As a matter of fact, uh, this month we'll be able to get our THC products in California, and next month in Oregon. Uh, I'm sorry, we'll be able to do that, and we'll be able to get our THC products in California in November, and hopefully in December we'll be on the marketplace and in the shelves uh, in Oregon, and we extend to move into Arizona and Nevada uh, as soon as we make relationships in each one of those states. Um, and as soon as we start generating enough revenue, and I don't know, you know, I happen to be involved in some research when it comes to brain science through another company that I'm involved in. And our last clinical trial cost close to 18 to 20 million dollars. So we're right now trying to raise enough money so that we could have some of these clinical trials and research done. It's astonishing how much the research costs. And it's something I think that we take for granted, especially when you consider pharmaceuticals and what they have to go through as well. But it's encouraging, though, that money is starting to open up, I've seen. It seems that there are a lot of investors that are from conventional markets who are starting to put money into cannabis research. Has that been your experience as well? Well, there's a lot of of conventional money that's starting to come into the space. I'm not necessarily sure that it's all going directly to research. A lot of it's going to profit to see if they can you know, uh, raise the profile of some individual companies. There's some companies that have been very successfully traded on the Canadian Stock Exchange. And Canada is leading the way right now, which is really kind of ridiculous, where the United States should be the country that's leading the way, but we're not. So the second that we start seeing some of these deep dollars free up and more universities and more organizations don't fear the threat of any form of federal reprisal for 
um, uh, doing the research, I think you're going to see a considerable amount of research start to blow. Well, and hopefully that'll come with some of the funding that does go directly into pharmaceutical research as well. You know, the pharmaceutical industry is is among the richest in the world, and it seems as though our federal dollars should be going to industries that don't have quite so much excess money lying around. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next congressional term, because I believe that this new batch of people in Congress are going to make some serious changes. Um, what else is on the horizon for you, Montel? Well, again, I, I'm, right now we have, not only the limited scientific, you know, I have a THC product that is going to be entering the marketplace, THC, but our THC product is a little different than any other products that are in the marketplace right now. Instead of just trying to pump out THC, we are literally doing formulations that are different cannabinoids, broader spectrum cannabinoids. One of the things that Dr. Mishulam said back when he first discovered THC is that he knew unequivocally that cannabinoids work in an entourage or an orchestra effect. And so you can't literally play Tchaikovsky or you can't play Beethoven without strings. So to try to play it, you make music, but it's not going to be Beethoven. So the truth of the matter is, you, know, you can't take an entire cannabinoid out of the spectrum and think that they're going to elicit a response. And so our products are a broad spectrum cannabinoid product that includes not only THC, but CBD and myriad of terpenes to make it more bioavailability available. So I intend to expand production. We intend to expand our offerings right now. We're doing you know, an oil. I'm also delivering a CBD product across the country that's available right now on the internet. Uh, you can order it and have it delivered to your home. It's just CBD with some terpenes in there. And um, that's a formulation for alert and relax. And expand, intend to expand the distribution of those. But I'm also, I've been invited to participate in a multiple international settings for cannabis production and also for you know, uh, hemp production. So over the next couple of months, you may see some announcements come out of us, you know, out of London Scientific, where we've uh, been able to put together some relationships that will be announceable. That's fantastic. That's great news, too. And I like to hear that you're getting into the hemp space as well. And I encourage you to send me your announcements because I'd, I'd love to stay on top of that, definitely. And with the upcoming conference, Josh, are you going to be doing much on hemp this time? So, yeah, we'll definitely have some content um, in there about hemp. I think um, at the end of the day, hemp and cannabis are both, you know, things that should not have been prohibited. And then we need to continue to look at the research for this. And um, I think it can be school, cyber, and, and everything in between. And um, I think it's, it's very important to not just look at cannabis, but also hemp. So we'll definitely have some of that incorporated we're really excited to just, you know, kind of bring the platform that we've already created and built um, to back to the East Coast. And, and hemp has been a part of that in the past. So we're excited to, to build on that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I got to say, I got to say that what Josh is doing by ensuring this quality, this level of quality in a conference. So he's bringing together exhibitors and who are scientists who are willing to share their information. You know, anybody who's listening or earshot of this living anywhere within, I think, 300 miles of, you know, Baltimore should be in a car and driving there as quickly as possible 
to attend the conference to make sure that they get the most up-to-date information that they could possibly get. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to be sharing all of the updates that Josh has on this conference. And um, we've been, we did that for the last one as well. And I, Josh, I think it's really phenomenal. I, I have to ditto what Montel said that what you've accomplished with this conference since you started doing it is absolutely phenomenal. So kudos to you for that. Well, thank you so much. That means, you know, a lot coming from both you guys. Um, you know, like just touching on what Montel said, it's, it's really a great feeling because, you know, some of the companies we work with are direct, direct competitors to the other companies that we work with. And like Montel said, it's just really a great collaborative feeling how to even have like direct competitors be able to come together and share information and, and be at the same show and collaborate. Um, that happens a lot at Arcana Bootcamp. It's actually like a full day workshop that goes through you know, all aspects of industry from cultivation, sample prep, testing, edibles, manufacturing and extraction. Um, so really with that, we, like I said, again, we have a lot of the exhibitors um, or the vendors that do the bootcamp, the pre-conference that are also um, competitors with each other. And especially with that day, they kind of come into these, you know, smaller space um, when you consider, you know, a convention center exhibit hall. So it's a pre-conference, it's kind of in a facility. But it's just great to feel that collaborative energy of people working together because it's not always easy to do in a sea of competition, uh, especially in this industry, as I'm sure both of you guys know. Sure, that. Except in a fledgling, you know, industry, you know, what I think a lot of the exhibitors and a lot of people out there right now are starting to understand is it's going to take a rising tide to lift all boats. Not one individual company is going to break through and all of a sudden become the wealthiest company in the world. It's going to take everyone in this industry to come together. I mean, it took almost 20 years for the hyperbaric industry to sit down and start coming up with standards for each other to be acknowledged industry in the world. And, and I hope that it doesn't take 20 years to do the same thing for cannabis. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was just thinking exactly that same thing. And I think that unlike any other emerging industry in the world where you've got the secret sauce that people want to hold on to and covet for themselves to you know, make a profit, the more people share in this industry, the stronger the industry as a whole becomes. And the stronger the industry becomes, the more likely it is that we're going to remove some of these public barriers, you know, such as the laws and the stigma and, you know, the the inaccess to cannabis for patients. So, yeah, it's it really is quite a phenomenal thing to watch. And it, it, it does make the cannabis industry quite unique. And the more that people do collaborate on the science, the more you can come up with these standards. I interviewed Leslie Engelking about two years ago, who is the founder of Focus. And she's been working worldwide to try to develop some standards um, of practices, best practices for the industry. And, you know, also so that it really will inform patients too, you know, whereas in the pharmaceutical industry, you do have these standards and, and there are certain recommendations for specific um, disease types and genetics and everything else. And the more people collaborate, the more we're going to learn those same types of standards that'll work for disease specific um, conditions with the specific cannab cannabinoid profiles that work together to target those exact things. And, you know, that reminds me, too, I wanted to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, Montel, about your experience with cannabis as it relates to the multiple sclerosis. 
This is something that's touched my family. My husband actually has MS. And it's really phenomenal how much it's helped him. And it's difficult because he cannot do the THC during the day because of what he does. But certainly having the CBD in his system at all times has really made a big difference. And I wanted to just ask you on a personal level how it's helped you so that other people who are um, touched by this disease can maybe learn from it. Well, we're starting to understand, again, more and more almost every single day about the endocannabinoid system and the fact that our system, we have a secondary nervous system in our body that's responsible for our cellular homeostasis. There's research right now that actually believes that you know, the endocannabinoid system, when it's out of whack, it literally is what's responsible for most of the disease state that we have in this world. And so what you want to do is be able to trigger the right things that trigger the CB1, CB2, and what we may find out very soon, there's a, even something called a CB3 connector that we have in our brains and in our, in, in our organs in our body. And those connectors are literally aggravated by, you know, cannabinoids. Now, I, you know, for years used a very, very much higher CBD ratio to THC. But I recently, in my, my disease moves through its own metamorphosis, I literally started using a higher THC to CBD ratio, but I am pretty much saturated all day, every day. I, I ensure that I take oh, somewhere around you know, three to 400 milligrams of CBD every single day. I also have a formulation that has terpenes in it that make it a little bit more bioavailable. So that's where I'm thinking that my cellular homeostasis is coming from. And then depending on my you know, pain state at any given time of the day, I modulate the amount of THC that I use. Sometimes I use a considerably high amount of THC. And you know what we're finding out now where you know everybody has, has glommed on and believed that you know, CBD is the only miracle miracle cannabinoid. There are so many more CBN, CBG, several cannabinoids that most people aren't even thinking about, aren't even looking at right now that we should be looking at. I try to ensure that, you know, what I take in is a broader spectrum of cannabinoids that I make sure that I'm touching the base. So, you know, for me, it's, it's helped me keep my neuropathic uh, pain and my tremors and some of my neurological symptoms in check but it's also i think done really well to just keep me in a good homeostatic position well so much of what we know is anecdotal until all of the science opens up with these research institutions but you know you're i've learned something here and that is with the terpenes actually making the cannabinoids more bioavailable that's something I'm looking forward to actually doing a little research on because every day it's it's interesting. There's so much more to learn. Every day I learn that there's more to learn. <laughs> and there are questions that I can ask that I didn't know to ask before. And I consider myself to be pretty well educated <laughs> on cannabis. So thank you for for teaching me something today. It's just such an exciting science, and it's an exciting industry. The floodgates are opening up, and I'm really excited about the opportunity that that future legalization throughout the country is going to open up for people who are, you know, especially like in farming communities. There are so many 
different sectors of our population that have been marginalized for so long because of big business. And one of the things I love about the fact that cannabis is still illegal is the fact that it gives uh, people on a local level in their states an opportunity to get a jump on this industry before the the big um, multinational pharmaceutical companies come in and swallow it up. <laughs> so they're not going to do that until it's legal, you know, or federally legal. Um, although you're starting to see some uh, interest in big pharma, but I think for the time being, it's really great that smaller operations can can really start to develop this science. And it's just very exciting to me to see. Community. Absolutely. And that's right now where, you know, the formulations that we're doing with our, our letter of scientific and the product name is Montel. But what I'm doing with our products is that we're trying to expand out and use a broader spectrum of cannabinoids rather than just the THC, but we're using both THC, CBD, CBN, CBG. We're adding all those along with the myriad of terpenes that we know that the, the science has already proven over the last 40 years that, you know, terpenes have an effect on bioavailability, on the way it permeates the, the cell wall. So we're adding those in now and taking a look at most of what we're getting back is anecdotal, but uh, I'm very happy with the anecdotal information that we're getting back from a lot of patients. Well, so much of what we know is anecdotal until all of the science opens up with these research institutions. But, you know, I've learned something here, and that is terpenes actually making the cannabinoids more bioavailable. That's um, something I'm looking forward to actually doing a little research on because, um Every day, it's it's interesting. There's so much more to learn. Every day, I learn that there's more to learn. <laughs> and there are questions that I can ask that I didn't know to ask before. And I consider myself to be pretty well educated <laughs> on cannabis. So thank you for for teaching me something today. It's, uh, yeah, this is, um, it's just such an exciting science. And it's an exciting industry. There's just the, the floodgates are opening up. And I'm really excited about um, the opportunity that that future legalization throughout the country is going to op- open up for um, people who are, you know, especially like in farming communities. Um, there are so many different sectors of our population that have been marginalized for so long because of big business. And one of the things I love about the fact that cannabis is still illegal is the fact that it gives uh, people on a local level in their states an opportunity to get a jump on this industry before the the big um, multinational pharmaceutical companies come in and swallow it up. <laughs> so they're not going to do that until it's legal, you know, or federally legal. Um, although you're starting to see some uh, interest in big pharma, but I think for the time being, it's really great that smaller operations can can really start to develop this science. And it's just very exciting to me to see. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Josh, I just wanted to ask you what some of the highlights you're looking forward to this year. Yeah. So, you know, we're really, like I said, obviously we're excited about having Montel come and join us again, Baltimore and in, in its hometown. Um, we're, we're, gonna, we're putting together a screening of the um, documentary, Weed the People, that's all about pediatric cancer patients using cannabis as an option um, to treat cancer. That's the film that was done by Abby Epstein and Ricky Lake. Um, so we're just really excited about that. 
you know, I'm most excited to just kind of, like I said, bring the platform and some of the great, amazing speakers and some new, amazing speakers that we haven't had the chance to work with yet, but bring that back to kind of my hometown and, and to the East Coast in general and really, um, you know, plug that education and that information. I think, you know, we see a lot of the, the big business shows that pop up in this industry, but I think targeted shows like ours that are focusing on, you know, the science or the medicine or even the cultivation um, of this plant, I think they're very important. And I think, you know, just like with the pharmaceutical industry, any industry, you see it's targeted events that, you know, are not just the whole industry encompassed in them, but they target on certain sectors of, of the community. And as you know, we talked about the last time we, um, in Portland this last year, we just added for the first time our cultivation science track. So we're also going to be doing that again, bringing that to Baltimore, working with Dr. Jacqueline Green and Dr. Roger Kern that were both from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They're now part of this industry. So it's, it's really, like I said, it feels full circle to just kind of bring, you know, what we've done and worked so hard to build out on the West Coast kind of back home to the East Coast. And I got to say, for me, maybe a little selfishly, I'm kind of excited to plan an event that's just about two miles away from where I live <laughs> instead of across the country. That's fantastic. I know. And Montel, it'll be fantastic to hear what you have to say. What, what is your topic going to be for your keynote this year? I, mean, I, I think it's I'm going to stay a little bit more on more of a patient-centric appeal to the industry to make us remember that as much as everybody's so excited about this green Russian and business opportunity, they've got to take the patients off the battlefield. Absolutely. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. And it's really fantastic that people like you and, and also Josh, you too, are so engaged in moving this industry forward. And it's just such important work. And I think that it is transforming medicine. It's transforming lives. It's improving our society at large. It's, it's making us a kinder, gentler, more just nation. <laughs> and I believe that as we push this forward, it's going to continue to do so. Oh, so I am getting a signal that it is time to start wrapping it up. Josh, do you have any last thoughts? No, I just would love to invite all the listeners to come and check us out. Our website is CannabisScienceConference.com. And there you can find information on both our um, first Baltimore East Coast show that's coming up April 8th through 10th, as well as our flagship event uh, in Portland, Oregon, September 4th through 6th. Fantastic. Well, you know that I'll have all of that information on the website and whatever we can do to help promote it, please keep us apprised. And Montel, do you have any last thoughts? Um, I, you know, like, like Josh, I would really appeal to all your listeners to make sure, again, if you're within a 500-mile radius of Baltimore for a conference is to get in the car and come on down. It's going to be one of the, I think, most informative conferences that you would be able to attend on the entire East Coast. And for those that are interested in trying to find out a little bit more about what I've been doing, you can go up to MontelWilliams.com and our CBD products are available online to order at any time. I have one in alert and one in relaxed formulation, so they can go up and order that right now. And again, this is you know a, a Montel by Select utilizing a really, really active, very, very good uh, producer that I am the I am personally the formulator and am formulating products right now that I think meet the standard of a medication. And so, you know, if people are looking to try some other different things come our way. 
Well, that's fantastic to know. And I will also share that information, too, online uh, when this episode goes up into the archives so that people will know to find you and to learn more about it. But, you know, thank you both so much. And Josh, thank you for bringing the science into the public eye like you have. I think it's just, it's such important information for people to have and definitely look forward to your next conference. And, um, and Montel, thank you so much for the work that you do because I think that we need more recognizable public voices to get out there and advocate for this industry. And, you know, what you've done to bring this, this industry forward has just been phenomenal. And I don't think any of us would be doing what we're doing without people like you getting out there and letting people know just how important it is. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. So, Thank you so much, Snowden. It's always a pleasure joining you on the show, and, and we're excited to have you guys as part of the, the Baltimore show and the Portland show this year. Oh, thank you. And thank you for joining us, Josh. And, and Montel, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate your time, and I look forward to meeting you at the conference. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank Absolutely. you. Was, thank, thank you, Montel. It was great talking with you today. Thanks a lot, Josh. I will definitely see the comments. Oh, but it is time to bring yet another episode to a close. I'd like to personally thank my guests, Montel Williams and Josh Crossney, for sharing their insights and knowledge with us today as we celebrated our 100th episode. If you want to learn more about the Cannabis Science Conference or Lenative Scientific and other work that Josh and Montel are doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com click podcast to find today's episode and I'll post their bios along with information and links to their websites. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our partners and radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech, The Growers Network, and Health Terra. I'd also like to thank our production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. And it goes without saying just how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Green's coming